I like the image of like a plate of linguine balanced on one hand and a glass of wine in the other. It's a, yeah. And and the book on your nose. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right. Well- Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to be read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning. This podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, bonjour, guten tag, hola, ni hao, and welcome to another Keep It Fictional book chat from the Port Moody Public Library. We are here today to talk about books in translation. So did you know that the three most popular translated authors in the entire world are Shakespeare, Jules Verne, and my girl, Agatha Christie? As well as the fact that only 2 to 3% of all books published in North America are translated works of fiction as compared to 27% in France or 28% in Spain. So very curious to see what the rest of my readers have chosen today from that very, very small percentage of books that are translated into English for whatever reason. So we are joined today by the lovely Virginia, Sadie, Fiona, and Liz. There you go. And just like an open question to the group. Do you seek out books in translation or do you just kind of happen to stumble upon them? Happen to stumble, I think, mostly. Unless it's, I think for Liz and I, probably unless it's in Japanese, then we seek them out, I think. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Mm, Sadie? Mm, yeah, I definitely just stumble upon them. Um, I... Because of that, and this is something I might want to change, I find that I don't tend to read a lot of translated works. Um, So knowing that, I might make a more conscious effort to start searching them out going forward. Fantastic. And Fiona? Yeah, same boat as Sadie, um, except for probably manga. I do seek out a lot of manga. (laughs) And sometimes French comics. Les BD, exactement. Alors, we are going to move into our recommendations for what translated works that you should pick up. So we are going to start with Virginia. All right. So I think Liz and I take turn. Who gets the Japanese novel this week? It is me, apparently. So I have got for you today The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. Now, this book is translated from Japanese into English by Steven Snyder, and he has done basically most of most of her work. I'm really curious about the other ones. But this one has been nominated for all the literary awards. It's nominated for the Booker Prize, the National Book Award, also, also the Science Fiction and Fantasy Award. If you want to try and read one science fiction this year, but you're not really a science fiction person, this might be a good one because it's, I would say, definitely leaning more towards sort of on the literary side um, and more like a dystopian. So no space, no spaceships, don't worry about that. Um, So this book takes place on an isolated island and things have disappeared on this island. And when I say disappear, it's not that the objects have gone missing. The objects are there, but the meaning 
of the things, the feelings that are elicited by when you look at these objects, or the memories that you have or that you associate with these particular objects, they're all gone. On a day when something disappeared, you wake up and you sense that something is not quite right. And it might take some time for you to figure out what it is that has disappeared because you see all the objects are still there. But when you look at it, you feel nothing from them. And that's how you know that is the object that has disappeared. And when a thing disappeared, you're supposed to get rid of the actual physical object, take it to the incinerator or throw it into the river. You're not supposed to keep them anymore. And the memory police ensures that no instances of that object remain. And they do it very efficiently. They'll come into your house, they'll do a search, make sure that you no longer have what has disappeared. It may sound awful thinking about throwing away things like that, but for the people that live on the island, for our unnamed narrator, for example, they don't have any meanings anymore, these objects. So letting go of them is not as painful as you might think. But there are a few people who don't actually lose their memories. And our narrator suspects that her mother used to be one of them. Because when she was young, she remember her mother would take her to this cabinet that has lots of little drawers. And every day she's allowed to choose a drawer and her mother would open it up, take out that little object and tell her stories about what this object is. What does it call? What does it mean? What does it do? And the stories that her mother has with it. And then one day, her mother was invited by the memory police to go and visit them. And she remembers the sleekest, fanciest car that came to pick up her mother. But then a week later, they sent her mother's body back to her and said that her mother has suffered a heart attack while she was away. But she knows that her mother must be special, like all the people that don't lose their memory. These days, when the memory police discover that you still have your memories, they don't come and escort you in a nice fancy car. They come and round you up with the same efficiency that they do with all the disappeared objects, and they put you on a truck, and you'll never see these people again. And that's why when our narrator discover somebody dear to them, maybe one of these people that don't lose their memories, she's determined to keep them safe and to hide them, but how and for how long? This book, I would say, is a very quiet kind of read. It's a very thought-provoking kind of read. The prose is very sparse. It's very minimalistic. It gives you a lot of time to engage with the words and think about what the author is saying. And it really fits, I think, the theme of the book. And if you think, ooh, that premise sounds mysterious and that why, why do things disappear or, or what is the role of the memory police? Like, are they the ones who decide what disappear next? Like, what is that all about? And if you want to find out the mystery, well, you will never find out because this is not what the book is about. In fact, I would say it doesn't matter why. The why does not matter at all. The book is published in 1994, so it's like 26 years ago, but I would say it's like a good book that it doesn't matter how old it is. I think everybody who reads it now is still up to very different interpretations of what really the book is about. It's been compared to 
1984 and and sort of George like kind of like an Orwellian kind of world, you know, about like totalitarian states and surveillance and all of that. And that's sort of what on the book jacket. That's what the publisher is trying to say. But I I don't really hundred percent agree with that. I feel like the book is very much to me about the impermanence of things and and that we all disappeared at one point or another. And, and about life and death and, and dying and, and losing memories and losing our attachments, losing our words and, and or, or in this case, being forced to give them up. And, and what do we do knowing that what kind of relationship we, we would have with our surroundings? And, and I think it's all up to each reader to to decide for themselves, like, what does that mean? I find myself. I read it like about a week ago. I, I find myself thinking about the book like a lot, you know, and, and I think it's one of those books that will stay with you a long time after you read it. And I would love to hear what other people who have read the book think about it and, and what they get out of it. Because I can see that this is one of those books that is is very open to different interpretations. So if um, you want to give this book a try, um, it is uh, in a science fiction, a, a very a more literary kind of science fiction a try. Um, this is The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. Hmm. Thank you, Virginia. How hard does one cry when reading this book? I did not cry at all. Mm. Yeah, it's not a crying book. It's a very thinking book. It's okay. I, I yeah, it's weird because I I don't. It's a different kind of engagement with it. I I don't think it's an emotional. I, I at least for me, it's not an emotional engagement with the book. It's it's a very mm. kind of more like a intellectual, like just the ideas of it. It's it's terrifying, but not a crying book. At least I don't know, Liz. Okay, you read it also, I believe. Yeah. No, I um. I didn't find it a crying book either. And I'm prone to crying when I read certain certain types of books or watch, you know, certain kinds of media. So I agree with Virginia on that. It's, it is very um, contemplative. Okay, good to know. Okay. Um, I am going to shift gears then quite hard. And I will do my book, which um, is not what I would call a thinker. So the book that I would like to talk about is in one of my favorite genres, mysteries. And it is a book that was originally written in German and has been translated to English by John Brown John, um, whose parents could have done with a bit more creativity, but that's fine. The book that I would like to talk about is the fabulous under the Tuscan sun-esque a little bit of 80-year-old man who climbed out the window and then a little bit of mystery stirred in the pot as well and it is Auntie Poldy and the Sicilian Lions by Mario Giordano. It is about 60-year-old retired widowed Isolde Oberreiter, who is referred to as Auntie Poldy. And she is tired of life. She's weary of the existence and the monotony of the world. And so to kind of counteract all this, she decides to move to Sicily. Uh, This is much to the joy of her nephew, who is the narrator of the book. And much of the book is written in conversation, or one could even say argument with his auntie about what happened and what does not happen. So he is thrilled that she goes to Sicily and she kind of starts coming back to life being the person that he remembered. Freed from the confines of Bavaria, she 
reverts back to her wig wearing, wine drinking, hard cussing, taking pictures of handsome young traffic controllers on the street, aunt that he remembers. And her kind of her natural tendencies are further peaked when her extremely smoking young hot handyman who comes to her house to fix things um, goes missing and eventually ends up found dead and auntie whose father was a police inspector and will not let you forget that decides to investigate this is a fun bright light enjoyable read if you're looking for a little bit of sunshine uh, i would definitely recommend the auntie poldy series there are three in the series so far and they are just going to take you right into sicily you can read them with like a glass of red wine in one hand and a linguine in the other and you'll feel right at home so that is Auntie Poldy and the Sicilian Lions. I like the image of like a plate of linguine balanced on one hand and a glass of wine in the other. It's a, yeah. And and the book on your nose. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right. Well, perfect way. <laughs> it's a perfect way to read a book. Now, Sadie, what book mm-hmm. do you have for us today? Okay. So mine... I'm actually going to say might fall kind of in between uh, the two books that have been talked about so far. It's it's a bit of a thinker, but not so much. And it is also a mystery. Um, so this book is called The Library of Shadows by Mikkel Berkegaard. And it is kind of billed as a mystery thriller, uh, which if people know me, is not generally the kind of book that I like to read, is a mystery thriller about books. And I do enjoy books about books. Um, So this story follows John Campelli. And John is an up-and-coming young lawyer. Uh, He lives in Copenhagen. He is quite successful with his cases. He often has really, really well-read closing arguments that just help him kind of win all of the cases that he is put on. And he has just been chosen by a partner at his firm to take on the case of Otto Remmer. And Otto Remmer is a very wealthy businessman and one of the firm's most high profile clients and also most difficult clients. So John is very well on his way uh, to becoming a very successful lawyer, having a very successful career. But then John receives a phone call letting him know that his father, Luca, has just died. John and Luca, even though they live in the same city, they have been estranged for quite some time. Uh, Many years ago when John was a child, his mother commits suicide. And ever since then, his father has pushed him away. And they have now not spoken in many, many years. But out of respect, John does decide that he's going to attend the funeral. So he goes, he's met by his father's business partner and friend, um, and his name is Iverson. And Iverson explains to John that because Luca had no will, John is the only surviving family member. Uh, Luca's bookshop, which is called Libri de Luca, is passed on to John. Iverson seems like he actually might have more to tell John, but he does not want to go into it at the funeral. So they agree to later at the bookshop. So this bookshop, Libri de Luca, is a beautiful antiquarian bookshop. It was passed down to Luca from his father, Armin. It houses first editions and rare books. And it was also the place where Luca died. 
So John does have some fond memories of the bookshop when he was a very young child, but again, he has not been in it for many years. So when he arrives, Iverson brings him down into this basement and into a room that has always been off limits to John ever since he was a child. And inside this room, there are the most beautiful and most well-loved books um, in Luca's private collection. And these books are never on sale. They're just for Luca. So it is here that Iverson confesses to John that he's fairly sure Luca did not die of natural causes. Iverson is fairly sure that Luca was murdered. Iverson goes on to tell John about a secret society of bibliophiles that he and Luca were a part of. Now, this group is more than just book lovers and collectors. Each member of this group also possess magical abilities. They are able to influence a person's perception and actions simply by reading to, the, to a person or by hearing a person read. Uh, this group is called lectors. Iverson is one, Luca is one, and most likely John is also one. Iverson is also fairly certain that it was one of these lectors that killed Luca. So our story continues. John kind of gets pulled into this secret world a bit more. Uh, he learns of a decade-long feud between two factions of lectors and how this feud may have been the cause of his father's death and even may have been the cause of his mother's suicide. He starts to investigate his father's murder and he gets the help of a woman named Katerina, who is a lector herself, and she was mentored by Luca. However, as the investigation continues, it starts to get more dangerous. The bookshop, John, Katerina, and all of their friends start to be targeted, and more people from the secret society start to turn up dead. So I'm not going to say much else, um, but if you enjoy suspense, secret societies, betrayals, a little bit of magic, then this is probably a good fit. It felt to me as I was reading it like a mixture between Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code or The Lost Symbol combined with Carlos Ruiz Zafon's Shadow of the Wind. You kind of get that secret society mixed with that book, uh, bookshop love of books theme as well. Um, Carlos Ruiz Zafon's Shadow of the Wind is also a translated work. So if you're looking for another translated one, uh, that would be a good one as well. So yeah, lots, lots of fun, lots of suspense, betrayal, all that fun stuff. Who doesn't love a good exactly, betrayal? Exactly, exactly. Reading can do so many things, including killing yes. people. Yeah, yeah. The magic of the spoken word. There are certain word. books that if I heard read out loud, I'm pretty sure would yeah. But anyways, speaking of all of those good keywords that Sadie gave us, that leads us into our existential question of the day. Mm. So talking about how all books need a little betrayal, little romance, little magic. My question is, are there certain literary tropes that attract you to books? For example, orphans, which is a, a weird trope to really enjoy. But anyways, um, like I, I love a love triangle. I like an anti-hero. Is there any particular tropes that really grab you that if you see that on the dust jacket that it's an immediate must read? I'm going to start with Fiona. Starting with me because I hate tropes. <laughs> um, so I did. I looked up a few tropes to kind of like get an idea of like oh is there actually anything I like mostly I just found ones that I hate like love triangles um or enemies to lovers uh like I don't know 
but I did find some that I genuinely like, such as returning to your um, your town of birth. A lot of, and I noticed this happens a lot in Canadian literature, where you sort of go off to the big city, uh, you know, like grow up, and then for whatever reason, usually a funeral, you have to return to your uh, your place of origin. I love those, like reflective sort of ones. I also really enjoy intergenerational relationships. So when it's like sort of a crazy old person and like a young um, person and they, they um, you know, need each other for whatever reason and then they become friends. Oh, friends. Kareem's giving me a Sorry, look like, friends. you never read a book like that? Oh, like an intergenerational romance. And I was like, oh, they're <gasps> crazy old and they're very, I was like, <laughs> no. sure but okay that makes no yeah. no friendship intergenerational friendships yes yeah like that that one we um a lot of us just read it was a graphic novel um snapdragon and i also like found family narratives all right well glad we got that cleared up fiona um liz are there any tropes that really speak to you um isn't everything a trope now like <laughs> we've heard everything um you know before but um i don't know depending on my mood again this is all mood based but um i like a good sort of moral gray area so the so-called good character that does bad things or feels conflicted about what is the right thing and vice versa so-called bad characters that do good things um i guess tied into that a good redemption narrative a good redemption arc kind of their journey towards the redemption um and a good revenge story mm, interesting interesting all right sadie what are the tropes that speak to you mm -hmm. so i think my all-time favorite trope and pretty much no matter what the book is i will be drawn to it if it falls under this is the there's more to this world than you originally thought there was <laughs> Most of the books I have probably described on this uh, on this book chat fall into this category, um, whether that is I'm actually magic or there's a secret society of book people, like anything where there is another layer to the world that you didn't actually know and the characters discover that there there's more there's more to life and there's more to the world. Um, and usually that there's more to them. They are usually a part of that and drawn into it. Um, so that is definitely my all time favorite trope, no matter what. Um, I had another one in my mind and it has disappeared completely. So I was gonna talk about another one. Um, Liz, what Liz said sparked it and now it is gone. So it was the memory police. It was the memory, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. All right, now we get down to, I, I would call our most hardcore genre. Although Sadie, you're also a genre person, but uh, Virginia, what are your favorite tropes? If I'm going to pick one of each from everybody. Um, no, the found family, definitely, I think is one. Um, the morally kind of ambiguous characters is the other. I don't know. I just, it just happened to be this, the kind of book that I'm talking about. But memory loss, like, you know how, like, characters woke up and they don't remember anything. And then they have to kind of go back and trace, like, and figure out what's that. That's another one that I apparently I read a lot of books about that. And the other thing is... If there's a food competition, I know, I don't know why, but like if there's a food competition, I'm all there for it. Whether it is a graphic novel, whether it's a novel, it doesn't matter. If there's a food competition, 
like an Iron Chef style. Like Space Battle Lunchtime yes. must have been, yes. Yes. Like must have been everything for you. Um, because I read like genres and genres that are famous for tropes, so romance is all about them tropes. I love them all. I love all of them. But my favorite one is like best friends who suddenly realize like, oh, we're in love with each other. And I'm like, yes, yes. And um, on the kind of like found family, I love a ragtag group of people who all have different specific skills and then they all come together. <laughs> That's what it was, Kareem. That was the other one I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah it, it's definitely. a great, great trope for a reason. So th those are some of my, my favorite tropes. <laughs> all right. Well, glad we got that cleared up. And we are going to head back in time, back in translation, uh, to see what book in translation Fiona, or sorry, what graphic novel Fiona is going to recommend as a book in translation. So my book today, uh, it is truly, I think, a, a unique and original work. Uh, no tropes here. <laughs> um, it is My Brother's Husband, which is by... Gengoro Tagami. This uh, for me was a really a thinking, like a reflective and feeling uh, graphic novel. Um, and I would really recommend it for people who maybe don't do manga, haven't done manga before. It's a very, uh, like, it's a more adult and serious manga that I think might appeal to uh, people out outside of usual manga fans. So this book is about Yaichi and his daughter, Kana, and Mike. Mike is a super charming Canadian who arrives on Yaichi's doorstep. Turns out Mike is the widow of Yaichi's brother who passed away. When they were younger, Ryoji and Yaichi they're actually twins, um, but they sort of grew apart. And Ryoji moved to Canada, where he was sort of able to fully explore and express himself as a gay man, and was also able to get married, which is not something um, that gay people can do in Japan. He then passes away, and um, Mike travels to Japan to stay with his family and get to know more about his husband when he was a child. This is difficult for Yaichi because um, he may not have recognized it when he was younger, uh, but he had complicated feelings about his brother's sexuality. And he's not sure how he feels about Mike and his influence on his daughter, Kana. So the uh, this is actually a two volume series. And the first volume is very much about uh, Yaichi confronting his own homophobia and a lot of that is done through his daughter Kana and sort of thinking about how he wants to raise her and how he wants or what he wants her to learn so I think a lot of his um, impulses are to sort of be anti-gay uh, because it's not something that people are forward about in Japan it's not really accepted maybe behind closed doors but it's not something that you put out there. And here's Mike, who is absolutely charming, but flamboyant and loud. And Yaichi's not really sure how he feels about that. But the more Kana asks questions, the more he realizes that 
he wants her to be accepting and loving and she is she's so loving and accepting and she's crazy about Mike and so excited to get to learn a little bit about her uh, uncle Ryoji who uh, passed away it's so charming and thought-provoking and emotional I absolutely love it and I recommend it to a lot of people and buy it for a lot of people as a gift <laughs> and again even if you are not sort of a manga person or if you've just never read a manga um and these themes are things that interest you uh i, I would really recommend it as a place to start it's such a good one i cried at that one. <laughs> oh yeah i cried a lot yeah yeah so so beautiful and so nuanced and it really shows you how amazing manga can be and how many like fantastic stories are being being told i think we have this perception of what it is and it is so much more and books that make it over to the north american market like this are, are just like the tip of the iceberg and and i love like i love slice of life um kind of manga that often give you a sense of like what it's like to be in school in japan um and this was sort of a neat like um you just sort of get immersed in daily life um but it was it was focused on um aspects of daily life that are not something i know a lot about like how um how lgbtq plus people are treated in japan uh so that was really interesting fantastic all right thank you for sharing what book are you going to talk about today liz well, taking things back to the lighter side, I know, shocking, considering this is a book that I chose. Um, this one is called An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good, and it's by Helen Hurston, translated by Marlene Delargy, and it was originally written in Swedish. So now, uh, Helen Hurston is known for a series of mystery books that feature uh, the character Detective Inspector Irene who's very proficient at her craft of solving mysteries. So while this book is not specifically about her, but we'll get back to her later. Now, the elderly lady in question uh, in this compilation of short stories, her name is Maud. She's 88 years young, lives in Sweden, um, and she has a fairly carefree life. Now, ever since she inherited her family's downtown apartment. So we're talking prime real estate, okay? Prime real estate in a very, very coveted location. Um, since she inherited that apartment at the age of 18 and has lived there rent-free, she has known a carefree life where she has pretty much gone to do whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted, and everything is always to her liking. She's a creature of habit. Um, and she doesn't like to be swayed from those habits. She loves traveling the world. She loves going online. So she's a very, very active woman. Now, don't be fooled by the cover, though, with its sweet little example of needlepoint here. Do not be fooled, because Maude is not your typical 88-year-old Swedish woman. Now, while she looks all sweet and kind and adorable, she doesn't like to be told no. Now, this series of short stories is a compilation of her misadventures, uh, including, among other things, thwarting somebody who is out to get hold of her property, which, you know, over her dead body, 
she's going to let that happen. Um, and also uh, issues with pesky neighbors, to put it mildly. So like I said, Maud likes things the way she likes things. And if they are not to her satisfaction, she will take those things into her own hands. Now, this is where Detective Inspector Irene Huss comes into play. Now, will this savvy inspector be able to see, see through and expose Maud's reputation as the sweet little old lady in the apartment? Well, take a look and find out. This one was a delightful little romp. Even if you're not normally keen on short stories, each of the stories was very um, self-contained. Um, you don't need to know anything about any of uh, Helen Hurston's previous books to enjoy this one. And it's a little bit of mystery, maybe a little bit of murder, but on the lighter side of things. Just a little bit of murder. Just a little, little bit. bit. In every single little story, there's a little bit of that. It's lighter, but it's not that light. <laughs> Fantastic. So these are just five books in translation that you can go and seek out. And again, it's it's such a shame that only of all the books that are published in North America, two to three percent are translated into English from all of these fantastic countries and all these fantastic authors. So yeah, make sure to pick one up, um, seek out the work of authors from different places, writing in different languages, and the work of translators themselves, um, because they play an important part in that storytelling, as Jose Saramago said. I think I just said his name wrong, but... In his uh, Nobel Award winning speech, he said, writers make national literature, while translators make universal literature. So we hope that you have a wonderful week from everyone here at the Port Mooney Public Library. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.